So we come to our uh, reading from the Bible today, and uh, I'm taking three uh, fairly small sections from John's first letter. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, over the last few weeks in the fellowship group that I go to uh, at Stephen Susanna's, we've been studying this letter, and I want to share a few thoughts that, that have come about uh, as we've studied it. So uh, first of all then... Um, 1 John and chapter 3 and the first three verses. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Moving on a few verses in that same chapter to verse 16. John goes on to say this, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And then finally, a slightly longer section as we move on to chapter 4 of John's first letter. And we start from verse 7. And this, in the New International Version, is headed God's love and ours. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, sorry, rely on the love God has for us. 
God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who dares not love his brother, when he is seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we thank God for those wonderful words. And we pray that he'll help us give us understanding of them. Amen. Some of us remember the 60s um, when the Beatles sang just that. All you need is love. And many people today might agree, agree and say that love is the answer to everything. If only there was more love in the world, it would be a better place. Those of you who can remember the 70s, there was a sentimental film of the time that said that love is never having to say you're sorry. What a load of nonsense. Come on. Surely one of the great things of a loving relationship is that we can make mistakes and we can say sorry and with confidence because that love will not be dented. Um, But going back to that notion of if there is only more love in the world it would be a better place is actually true but unfortunately largely misunderstood. Because you see, love without the dimension of God our Father loses the very source of love and the reason that love exists at all. And you know, there's another pitfall when we try to analyse and think about love, and that is that human love is often imperfect. Sometimes love incorporates ulterior motives. We speak of cupboard love when we want something, but we don't really love for it at all. So there is fickleness and there is falsehood amongst human love. And therefore, if we only draw upon human love as our experience, then our understanding of love may not be what it should be. And also, if we only rely on feelings and emotions, that can lead to all sorts of problems because our feelings and emotions um, are like a roller coaster so often. However, all is not lost because although human love may well be imperfect, its origin is found in our Creator God who made us each in his own image A little flashback there to a sermon from a few weeks ago when we thought about human beings being made in God's image. So every human is capable of giving and receiving love because each one of us are made in the image of God who is a supremely, is supremely a God of love. But as ever, we need to look to the Bible for are true and fundamental definitions and we find uh, one of those definitions uh, in the passages that we read. 
And John is quite emphatic here. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when we first look at these sections from John's letter, we're struck by the origin of love. And we're told that love begins with God. Love is never brought into existence simply because we experience it. Rather, it is fundamental. It's an absolute part of the world we live in and the universe that we are part of. It's a very essential component about the created order uh, within this universe. It was created in and through love. And thereby, when we look at the creation, it reflects love wherever we look. God first loved. God has always loved. God will always love in the future. God is the very source of love. And love is dominant in the eternal and unchanging nature of God. If you want an absolute in this world of change and uncertainty, look to the love of God. And you know, it's amazing that God loves you and me now at this very moment just as much as he has ever loved us or indeed will ever love us in the future. When you and I are in heaven one day, God will not love us more just because we're in heaven. He loves you as much today as he ever will. And if that isn't a source of great joy, I can't think of anything else to offer. If you need comfort and support, if the world seems overwhelming at this point in your life, if you are struggling even as I speak today, then reflect on this truth that God loves you today as much as he ever has or ever will. And even if you don't feel God's love today, remember the reality that is spoken about in God's word, that God loves you so very much. But we need also to reflect upon the fact that God's love is most potently described in terms of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to emphasize the second part of that verse. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And here is the potency. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the very focus of God's love is the fact that Jesus Christ left the perfection of heaven to become a man in this fallen world in all its brokenness, in all its depravity, and in all its desperation. Uh, And Paul records this very aptly for us in Corinthians, or the second letter to the Corinthians, where he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. You and I are rich indeed because of the poverty of the Lord Jesus on the cross. This focus of God's love for you and for me finds its maximum intensity in the cross of Calvary where our Lord submitted to death a supreme sacrificial death, the perfect atoning death, the lamb without blemish, the one and only death to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin once and for all. The death where Jesus took upon himself the wages of our sin and died in our place. And all out of his perfect and immeasurable love for the salvation of the ungodly, the unlovely and the imperfect, which I'm afraid is you and me. And sometimes I think it's very difficult for us to really get our minds around the overwhelming magnitude of God's love for us. We can say the words over and over again, but can we really understand what is being said? It is here that John's letter is really helpful. John knew God's love. He understood the intensity and the consistency of God's love, and he pours out all he knows about God's love in that opening verse of chapter 3. And he makes this almost explosive statement. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Now unfortunately in the NIV translation which that is. We miss a little bit of detail. The statement of God's love I think in the NIV translation is presented more as a fact. It's a wonderful fact but it's still just A fact. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. The statement of fact is astonishing. And it does describe God's love as great. But if we look back to the older translation from the King James Version. We read this. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And we sort of lose some of the things that we might understand later on because it's using slightly obscure words there. But it says, behold. And John is demanding an action from you and me as we read those few words from the opening uh, section of chapter 3. He's, he's saying, behold, take a good look. Look and consider And I've taken the liberty of offering my own translation of this verse, which I think is incredibly arrogant, but I don't mean it in that way. I think this helps us if we join the NIV version with a slightly modernized idea of the King James Version. I think what's being said here is this. Look and take on board how great a love the Father has lavished on us. It demands an action. It's not just a statement. It demands us getting involved and engaged. It's no passive statement of fact. This is John demanding our attention. This is John seeking our active engagement. This is John bursting with joy over his own understanding of the greatness of God's love. And he's saying, well, you do the same. This is what I've found. I want to share it with you. Look how how amazing God's love is. Ponder upon it. Rejoice in it. Be amazed by it. Even to the point of being utterly overwhelmed.
Now, there's that word lavish. It's a word that we, we find vulgar in society. We don't like the word lavish because it speaks of over-the-top luxury, sumptuous furnishings, those thick pile carpets that your feet sink into that you can't afford to have in your own house, the gold taps in the bathroom. Maybe you have some of those, I don't, but... Yeah, lavish to us means insane luxury. But what I want you to do is to recalibrate, to retranslate that idea and apply it not to vulgar materialism, but to refocus it on the intensely pure and overwhelming magnitude of God's love. And there we have it. Look and take on board how great a love the Father has lavished on us. But you know, God's love is not just an aimless love. It has a deep purpose. And if we read that opening verse in its fullness, we read this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And as if that's not enough, John emphasizes it and says, and that is what we are. We are the children of God. God's awesome love that is lavished on you and me is lavished in such a way to ensure that you and I are God's children. And we note here that John writes of the love of the Father. He doesn't say how great is the love of God. He says how great is the love of the Father. God's great desire for you and me is that we are his children and he wants to lavish his love on us, not as some remote force or being, but intimately as our heavenly father. Now it's only possible for you and me to be children of God if we are saved through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So our opening verse from Chapter 4 of John's uh, letter, where we looked at the definition of love from the Bible, is intimately linked with this amazing verse from chapter 3. So, something, something's gone wrong there, sorry. Uh, really sorry, I got out of sync. Um, sorry, yeah, so that's the verse... Um, This is the verse from chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. And the link is this. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, there is yet more. Because we are human, we cannot fully understand God's love in its completeness simply because we are fallen humans who live in a fallen world. But we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And yet we still live in a sinful world, but we can know God's love. And John goes on a little bit further in in chapter 3, and he says this, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God... And what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so John is mindful of the fact that our perception of our father's love for him 
sorry, our Father's love for us is, is as yet incomplete. We are still imperfect people, imperfect children, even though we have been redeemed. We don't have access to the full picture of God's love. We are limited in our thinking. And the Spirit does a wonderful job in opening our eyes to see the Lord Jesus. And we think about the lavish nature of God's love from what John has just written. But it is still incomplete. And I think that's an amazing thing. If we think of, of those words that John explodes with, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, and yet he admits that's incomplete. I mean, what is in store for us? I do wonder. So wonderful though the lavish nature of our Father's love is, it is still complete. There is so much more. And we have to accept that we will need to wait patiently until the day comes when we will... F- when everything will be finally revealed for us, and when we one day will understand the full magnificence of the love of our Father God for us. The promise is simple yet profound. When you and I meet with Jesus, either through death or upon his return, whichever comes first, we will be instantly transformed to be like Jesus. All sin will finally be removed permanently we will no longer have our human eyes tainted by our lust for sin but we will have the new eternal eyes of Jesus and through those eyes we will be able to see him as he is and it is then too that we will gain full understanding of the true nature of God's eternal love for each one of us. Right, well we've looked at the origin of love and we've looked at its nature for us as God's children, but John also speaks here of the practicality of love and how we live our lives as God's children while still on this earth. He writes this, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now we have to accept here that this is gender neutral in actual fact, but it's written in the old-fashioned way. So we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters would be a better thing, I think. You see, John here wants to teach you and me about practical love. He reminds us again what love is, but this time he doesn't draw an illustration of love taken from daily life, but he points us yet again to the supreme example of love, namely Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. He reminds us that you and I know what love is really about because we have heard about the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel message. The death of Jesus on the cross was not a symbolic or passive death. His death was real and it was brutal. And the suffering of our Lord on the cross was far greater than we can fully imagine or understand. 
So the point John emphasises here is that true love cannot be passive. Rather, it is active, it's involved, it's intimate. In the same way that the death of Jesus was active, involved and intimate for you and me. With at the very heart of it, the achievement of your salvation and my salvation. So active and practical is the principle of love that John makes uh, within his his uh, letter here. Uh, and he, he does say that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Um, now we can never equate our love with the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross as that had the full dimension of salvation. Uh, if we die for the sake of the brethren, we do nothing to actually save them. But rather what John is saying is here that the idea of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ must be of the level of intensity and depth that could result in us laying down our lives for them if needs be. So you and I have a fundamental obligation, and that obligation is to be Christ-like in our love for each other. John leaves us in no doubt it is a serious obligation to be Christ-like in our love, even to the point, maybe, of laying down our lives. And the point is this, that Christian love is costly. There's nothing superficial about it. Christian love is never done on the cheap. And John helps us with a practical example as if to further illustrate the point he's just made. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? John is here prompting you and me to ask that rather uncomfortable question. How do I respond to my fellow Christian in need? And we have in our minds the thought that if Jesus laid down his life for me in love, then it follows that my love for others ought to be Christ-like to the extent of being sacrificial love. But John offers us no comfortable way out of this because he then goes on to explain that an absence of such sacrificial love even brings into question whether I am a Christian at all. Difficult and challenging stuff but we have to accept that this is part of what John is telling us about the nature of love. And he says this also. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In other words, actions speak louder than words where love is concerned. And John gives us this great challenge. He's given us deep insight into the immeasurable intensity of God our Father's love for each one of us, supremely demonstrated by the death of Jesus on the cross to save each one of us and to additionally qualify each one of us to be adopted as God's children through our Lord's death. And to such an extent that we should be completely overwhelmed by God the Father's love for us. But in turn, he reminds us that it would be unthinkable of you 
and unthinkable for me, as joyful recipients of God our Father's love, not to do likewise when confronted with the needs of our brothers and sisters. John's idea of love is entirely practical. It's easy to say to someone, I love you, but it's quite a different challenge to actually do it. But that's what John wants you and me to grapple with and to sort out in our lives. It's easy for me to say to you as a brother or sister in Christ that I love you. But I must ask myself is where that ends. With mere words? Or is my love truly practical or even sacrificial? Love costs. But we should not count the cost, however much the practical outworking of love costs us in terms of our possessions, our money, and indeed our time. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, before you feel beaten up by that, I must say that of all the fellowships I've ever had the privilege to be part of, This is probably the most loving, and I see a lot of practical love happening. But we need to be reminded that the origin starts with God's love, and it's therefore our natural response as his children to love our brothers and sisters. Anyway, finally, John teaches us about how we should live in love, living in love. And we have two verses here which mirror each other. Uh, First of all, from chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. But then the counterpoint is this. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You can see that they mirror each other. But the link between these two verses is the bold statement that God is love. God, whose very essence is love, approaches his people in love. And John tells us that as we live in this divine love, so we live in God and God lives in us. It is God's love that cements our father-child relationship. It is the love of God that guarantees life and this life reveals itself in love. And you and I are able to live in love and live a life of love because God first loved us. And it's that vital link between God's love and our lives as his children that makes love complete among us. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Our love is made complete and made perfect. That means that God has bestowed his love on you and me now in a way which is actually complete. That's what John is saying. And in that sense, for God's love to be complete, it means that you and I lack nothing today in terms of God's love. And the great consequence of this is that our salvation is assured to such an extent that you and I will be confident on the day of judgment. Now, I know this is difficult to understand, um, and, you know, it's something we have to ponder on, perhaps, but we can at least be confident 
on the day of judgment. And a confidence not from ourselves, not through what we've done, but because God's love is in us. And you know, God will not change his mind, as we considered earlier. God's love for you and me today is as much as it ever has been or ever will be. It's incontrovertible, sorry, inconceivable, sorry, inconceivable that God will ever withdraw the salvation that he has already given us because he will not stop loving us. And the supreme act of love was shown us through the death of Jesus on the cross. So we can celebrate uh, those words that God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And that describes you and me as God's people. And that's frankly awesome. I know awesome is an overused word, but I think it's an appropriate word here. So fundamentally, to live in love means to be fully aware of the love that God has bestowed on us, our salvation in Jesus, and the fact that we are God's children. And we are to have confidence in this because everything is rooted in God's irrepressible love for each one of us. And furthermore, while we remain in this world, we are imitators of Jesus Christ as we carry out this work. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. We are like Jesus Christ. We may not feel that we're like Jesus Christ, but the fact is we are because we are God's children. And you and I are like Jesus in this world, uh, not because we are good, but because our Father in heaven has made us his children and thereby made us, made Jesus our brother. And we have been enabled by God to reflect the qualities of Jesus in this world. And that's something we all need because I know I couldn't do it in my own strength. But apparently, um, you and I, we reflect Jesus in this world because God has enabled it. So, um, in conclusion, sorry, we love because he first loved us, that's true. In conclusion then, let us dwell frequently and often on the greatness of the love the Father has lavished on us. Let us remember that through the Father's great love for us, you and I have been made his children. Let us always link our understanding of true love with the supreme demonstration when Jesus laid his life for us on the cross of Calvary in love. And may those facts then so motivate us to be Christ-like in our love and our behaviour in this world. And let us not be shy to test our own love in terms of its practical and sacrificial quality, uncomfortable though that may be. And finally, let us live lives of love in which we are fully aware that God's love abides in each one of us forever and that we need not fear either death or the day of judgment. Indeed, because of God's great love for us, 
we may even face such things with confidence. But I leave the very last words to John Owen, a Puritan of many years ago. And he said this, and I think it's worth uh, being a finale. He said, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Amen.